Chapter Six of The Hall in the Grove by Pansy. The Slibrivox recording is in the public domain. Launched. Paul Adams had an item of news to communicate to his mother the next morning at the breakfast table. He commenced it in the form of a question. Mother, have I got a clean shirt? Mother opened her eyes in surprise at the question. Paul was not given to caring whether his garments were clean or soiled, and was apt not to don the carefully ironed and carefully mended garment that she regularly laid out on the bed for him every Sunday morning, until after earnest explanations on her part that she must have the other one to wash. Behold, now it was only Thursday, and he was inquiring for a clean shirt. "'Why, yes,' she said hesitatingly. She had a habit of speaking hesitatingly, as though she were never sure but what she was about to say would not be better left unsaid. "'Your Sunday shirt is all washed and mended and looks nice, though the bosom is giving out a little. You ought to have two new shirts, but I don't know how to manage it. I really don't.' "'Never mind,' in not most good nature. "'I don't want two shirts. One will do. But I want it to-night.' I'm going out this evening. Likely as not, I won't be in quite as early as usual. Can't tell. The widow Adams set down her cup of weak tea untasted, and gazed in dismay at her son. It was coming now, that nameless, dreary something which she had been dreading all these years. Paul was going to fix himself up and go off to some disreputable place, and do some disreputable thing. Going out? she repeated, dismay in voice and manner. "'Why, where are you going?' "'Oh, going to spend the evening with some of the fellows. I'm not going far away, but I may be later than common.' "'Well, but, Paul, you always spend the evening with some of the fellows, or somewhere else. I'm sure I can't tell when you've spent one with me. There's something more than that, because if there isn't, why should you need a clean shirt? Your Sunday shirt!' Remember, if you put it on to-night, why, then you won't have one for Sunday, as far as I can see. I can't wash and iron and mend the other between this and Sunday, I don't believe, on account of that sewing for Mrs. West that I promised this week. Don't go off with any of them disgraceful fellows, Paul. Don't do it. Paul chuckled. He had a vision of himself sitting in Mrs. Fenton's parlor. He had passed the house, and glanced up at it often enough to feel secure that there was a pretty nice parlour within, himself sitting there in company with Dr. Gilbert Monteith, for instance, and his mother calling him a disgraceful fellow. For some reason not understood by himself, he was not disposed to tell his mother anything about the invitation out. "'The shirt will do well enough for Sunday, too. Don't bother.' This was all the explanation he offered. "'But why should you want a clean shirt in the middle of the week?' she persisted. "'There's some goings-on that you don't tell me about.' Whereupon the graceless boy chuckled again. "'I'm going to the CLSC,' he giggled. "'Going to join it.' The look of horror on his mother's face satisfied his ideas of fun. He knew very little about those mystic letters himself, but still he was certain that he was better posted than his mother. He was dimly conscious that he had been honoured. 
his mother would be sure to think that it was something disgraceful, and the idea was irresistibly funny. "'What's that?' she fairly gasped the words. "'Blessed if I know,' said Paul, laughing so hard that his cup of tea nearly choked him. "'I'm going to-night to find out.' "'Don't do it, Paul, I beg of you, don't. It's one of them disgraceful secret things, I've heard of them. Oh, you needn't laugh. I'm older than you, and I've heard of a sight of things that you don't know nothing about.' As long ago as when your father was a young man, they tried to get him to join, and he never would. I won't do nothing that I can't tell my mother about if I'm a mind to, he said, and he stuck to it. How many times I've thought of that, and hoped that my boy would never do anything that he couldn't tell his mother. And here you are going into it, and you'll go right straight down to ruin, I'm sure of that." Paul was in no way dismayed at this prospect. In truth, he had heard enough about it to become hardened. His mother had been sure, ever since he could remember, that he was going to ruin, and had told him so with tears. He was inexorable, he would make no explanation, and he would insist on putting on his clean shirt that very evening, and going to that disgraceful CLSC. I hardly know how to explain to you how it was that a boy who had always been so regardful of his mother's scares as to refuse to stay out late at night, should yet have allowed her to work her poor nervous heart into spasms of fear over this new departure, when a few words of explanation would have filled that same heart with motherly hope and pride. I don't know how to explain it to her he told himself, as he shut the door with a little bang, vexed at her tearful face when there was no cause for tears. I know it's nothing that she need cry about this time, and that's enough. Supposing I should tell her she'd go and talk about it, tell all the old women on this street like enough, and be pleased in all that, and I dare say it won't come to anything, it isn't no ways likely I'll ever go more than once, and then she would just be disappointed, and what's the use? And I really believe that the strongest motive he had for silence was that vague fear of another disappointment for his mother. Yet he disappointed her in one way or another every day of his life. He was certainly a queer boy. Poor Mrs. Adams! She had a miserable day. I offer no excuse for Paul. I am ashamed of him." As for his mother, shall excuse be offered for her? She was an adept in borrowing trouble, she had practiced for years. True, her life had been one of real practical troubles, yet it is also true that some of her most severe trials had been borrowed, wrought out in the darkness of the night, lived over in anticipation, wept over, struggled with, in a measure endured, and they never came. Yet, so far from learning wisdom by this long experience, she still expected them, or others worse than they, and wrought at her sad problem all the same. She looked again at her boy's shirt, making sure that every button was in its place. She sought out a clean handkerchief, and laid it beside the shirt. She brushed his best coat with careful hands, and mended a tiny rip in the sleeve, and she had an hour's labor with the shining shirt-front, dampening, rubbing, ironing, because there had plashed on it two or three hot tears. Had Paul known that the tears really fell, 
he would have made some effort to relieve his mother. As it was, he came home from his business of lounging earlier than usual, dressed himself with marked care, taking most unusual pains with his hair, and looking altogether so neat and respectable that his mother felt a little thrill of pride rise up among her fears as he passed through the kitchen. She had not ventured further opposition. The only question she asked was the tearfully put one, "'How late do you expect to be, Paul?' "'I have no kind of an idea,' he said cheerily. "'I don't know where I'm going, you see, nor what will be done with me.' And the mother groaned. Ah, but had you been able to peep into Mrs. Fenton's pretty parlor that evening? Paul was right in his surmise that it was a particularly pleasant room at all times. But on this occasion, the first regular meeting of the newly organized CLSC, its mistress had done what she could to make it more than usually attractive. She had labored half the afternoon to make her ivies and ferns trail and droop in just the right direction, and at dusk came Caroline, fresh from Mrs. Chester's greenhouse, bearing a choice collection of cut flowers. It was late enough in the season for these to bring special joy to Mrs. Fenton's heart. "'See,' said Caroline, "'they are all going out this evening, and Mrs. Chester said the beauty of these would be gone by to-morrow, so if I had any friends who would like them, I was to take them. Wasn't she nice?' "'Very,' said Mrs. Fenton in glee, and while she arranged them in her pretty vases with skilful hand, she wondered whether Mrs. Chester would have given her flowers, had she known they were destined that very evening to help people up out of their spheres. All four of the burners in the pretty little chandelier had been lighted, Mrs. Fenton remarking apologetically, when her husband laughed, that she did like light. The delicate bell-shaped shades drooping over the gas-jets added their beauty to the general effect. I have before told you that Mrs. Fenton was an artist, so far as regarded the adorning of her home, and she had exerted herself to the utmost to make it an attractive spot on this first evening of their venture into the world of literature. I ought not to use the word venture. It had already passed beyond the limits which surround that word. The preliminary business meeting had been a success, both as regarded numbers and enthusiasm. There were found to be those in Centerville not too much absorbed in painting or self-esteem to appreciate and join hands with the new scheme. Whether the imposing name of Dr. Gilbert Monteith, announced as president of the organization, had much to do with rapidly swelling the list of members, who shall say? Certain it is that Mrs. Fenton had on her list a comfortable sprinkling of names from high sources. In fact, she had one or two that Mrs. Chester had tried in vain to secure at her fashionable evening gatherings. Yet she had been true to her first motherly ambition to get hold of the ward boys. This desire she had mentioned, not without some anxiety, to Dr. Monteith when he called one evening in an entirely informal way to talk over their plans, for the bright little woman had been unanimously chosen secretary. Would Dr. Monteith think she was lowering the standard of the CLSC by trying to introduce to its membership such doubtful young men as these? Also, what would he think of Caroline? 
These questions made Mrs. Fenton's heart beat fast. But I rejoice to tell you that she set her pleasant mouth in firm lines, and told herself that whatever Dr. Monteith or anybody else thought of Caroline, she was to belong, provided she, Mrs. Fenton, had anything to do with it. If any person objected to Caroline, it should be the same as though they had objected to her. The ward boys might be doubtful, perhaps they were, perhaps it was foolish to try to do anything with them, in that line at least. But Mrs. Chester's Caroline was another person. She was not left long in doubt as to Dr. Monteith's opinion. His handsome eyes flashed instant sympathy, and his cordial voice said, "'My dear Mrs. Fenton, that is one of the best of the good thoughts that you have had concerning this movement.' if we could get hold of these two young men we might save them and through them i am half frightened to think how many others and then he in his turn astonished mrs fenton did she know anything of a boy or a young man rather by the name of adams his mother was a poor struggling widow and the boy was no comfort to her was always hanging around the street corners was constantly with the ward boys and others of their stamp, was going to ruin, he feared, and yet he fancied the boy had capabilities. His father was a man of unusual strength of mind. Dr. Monteith had known him when a boy, and although he had had almost no advantages, he had picked up a good deal of various sorts of knowledge, and was a man of sterling worth and much promise at the time of his sudden death dr monteith by reason of his busy life had lost track of the boy until quite recently a fact which he regretted did mrs fenton think it possible to reach just such a boy as he was through such a channel mrs fenton felt that her fair face was showing crimson blushes she was so astonished yes she did know paul adams by sight at least and she knew his mother very well Mrs. Adams occasionally did fine starching and ironing for her when she was pressed for time, and many a nice bit of comfort from her cellar and pantry had found its way to Mrs. Adams' home. She did not tell Dr. Monteith all these things, but her voice at least must have expressed her surprise, for he smiled as he said, "'I am not at all sure that we could reach him. I don't know that he has an idea of ever trying to be other than what he is.' but for the sake of his father I should like to get hold of him. Would you have any objection to my inviting him to join us? Oh, no, indeed. Fancy her making objections to anyone whom Dr. Monteith might choose to invite to her house. But after that she had not deemed it necessary to commend Mrs. Chester's Caroline to his special forbearance. That same Caroline looked very pretty on the evening in question she had not in any sense stepped aside from her usual dress it was a dark plain dress costing so little by the yard that it would have surprised even mrs fenton who was a practical economist but it was made with exceeding care was perfect in fit and the soft cheap lace at throat and wrists set it off as much as real lace at an unmentionable price would have done better indeed because of one's instinctive sense of the fitness of things. While at work among the flowers, Caroline had, from force of habit also, pushed into the braids of her hair a cluster of scarlet fuchsias, 
and, whether she knew it or not, they fitted her perfectly. As the peal of the bell announced the first arrival, she turned away from the flowers with heightened color and a little laugh as she said, It seems to me as though I ought to retire to the kitchen or the nursery. Where shall I sit, Mrs. Fenton? Just where you please, said Mrs. Fenton promptly. Don't you go to being foolish, Caroline. There will be no one here who will not respect you in proportion to the respect which they have for themselves. That is our president, I think. Isn't it grand that we have such a president? The parlor filled rapidly. Mrs. Fenton was jubilant, and yet not quite satisfied. She had not before realized how eager she had been to secure the ward boys. But, as often as the bell would peal, a flush of expectancy would rise on her face, to fade again as only others of their immediate circle were admitted. A close observer would have also discovered that the genial president was on the alert, watching for what had not as yet appeared. They came, however, the three came together, somewhat late, for, at the last moment, Jim's courage had failed him, and he had announced his intention of giving it up. Not so, Paul. He was astonished with himself for having entered into any such engagement, but once having donned a clean shirt and blacked his boots, and spent unusual thought and care on his personal appearance, he was resolved that it should not be for naught. On this Joe agreed with him, and, by dint of much coaxing, they finally prevailed upon the one who was usually their leading spirit to reconsider. I don't think I shall be able to set before you a description of the effect of that brightly lighted, flower-perfumed room on those three young men. The ward boys were almost as unused to such scenes as was Paul. It is true they had a parlor at home, but it was always closed and dark, the dust having gathered about even their mother's old-fashioned portrait. As for Paul, the neat clean kitchen, lighted only by one small lamp, so old that it was always out of order, was, you will remember, his daily lesson in the refinements of life. Of course he immediately adopted extravagant views as to the beauty of Mrs. Fenton's parlor. But while taste and elegance undoubtedly had their effect on these young men, they were as nothing compared with the courteous and cordial greeting which was given them. Dr. Monteith arose from his chair of honor near the study table, and, coming forward, gave a hand to each, while in few words of pleasant greeting he assured them of their welcome, and every member of the circle chose to follow their leader's example, albeit some were amazed at their own action. Certainly, whatever the CLSC might develop for these three, their first impressions were exceedingly pleasing. I will admit to you that they all three understood little of the subjects that were discussed during the evening. Merivale, said each to himself at intervals, what is Merivale, or who is he? Does it mean a man, or a woman, or a place? Now each had that degree of self-respect, if indeed that is the proper name for the feeling, which made him resolve to discover as soon as possible all about Merivale, without admitting for a moment to the others that he was not thoroughly posted. Rome, what about it? Did they mean that little village on the railroad forty miles or so north of here? 
it wasn't likely for who ever heard of anything happening in rome worth talking about yes they knew every one of them that there was such a city or country or town across some ocean renowned for something the momentous questions were which ocean town city or what for what renowned curious material this do you think for a literary and scientific association let me tell you they took certain steps that evening without which there would be no scientific investigations no literary men or women they resolved every one of them to find out the talk went on in the form of general and interested conversation no not general for our three boys who began this evening for the first time to suspect that they might be young men could not join in it presently james ward the more daring spirit of the three leaned forward and possessed himself of a book that lay on the table exactly like one in mrs fenton's hand to which he could see she occasionally referred merivale's general history of rome merivale was then doubtless a man and had written a book about rome so much for knowledge you need not smile if i admit to you that james ward felt in a certain sense triumphant he had one fact which an hour before he had never heard of young paul whose keen eyes were in all portions of the room at once quietly held out his hand for the book as james was about to return it to the table and in a twinkling placed himself on a level with his friend he went farther he opened to the title-page and read a history of rome from the foundation of the city to the fall of augustulus rome then was a city and of sufficient interest and importance to have a book written about it paul had an immediate desire to know where it was situated how it was founded who augustulus was and where he fell to he opened curiously to the first chapter and read the heading slowly and with great care the sight of rome my said young paul to himself that's queer spelling his only knowledge of the word being derived from s i g h t he read on its configuration and geological formation a glance at the italian peninsula at the basin of the mediterranean at the empire beyond it all greek to paul adams he laid down the book with a hardly suppressed sigh and there flitted before him the memory of sundry wasted days in the old dingy schoolhouse he wondered curiously whether had he studied more and tripped boys less he should understand this sentence this evening what of it why should he care to understand it what difference did it make to him where rome was or where augustulus fell why had he come here this evening why indeed but that as he raised his eyes at that moment he met the genial ones of professor monteith and something he was not metaphysician enough to know what made him immediately wish for a second time that evening that he knew a little something although professor gilbert monteith was heartily interested in the literary and scientific circle and meant to give it his utmost strength and the benefit of his thorough education it gives me great joy to tell you that he was more interested in human lives and human souls than in any phase of scientific truth that could possibly be presented 
he meant to aid the few earnest students gathered about him and he meant also to save these three boys if he could he gave his mind to so shaping the questions so commenting on the answers that the whole was well calculated to awaken the curiosity of those who knew nothing concerning that ancient city in short he so skilfully introduced our novices to the seven renowned hills and the flowing tiber and the curious legend of romulus and remus that not only was mrs fenton heartily interested and caroline's eyes glowed and young mr bennett the law student declared to himself that this was something worth having but what was infinitely more to the point three young men on the high road to ruin roused themselves from their lethargy of ignorance and indifference and positively resolved to keep the vantage ground that they had gained and put themselves in a way to hear these people talk moreover in the course of the evening young robert fenton without the least intention of adding to the spell without the slightest knowledge that he did any such thing pushed his chair closer to dr monteith and began to question the palatine and the aventine and the winding tiber and the vatican were names that rolled so easily from his young lips and the questions he asked were so promptly recognized as of importance and so carefully answered that while mrs fenton's cheeks glowed with motherly pride the cheeks of the ward boys glowed with shame just to think murmured james to himself that fellow is only fourteen and young Paul said within himself, That youngster knows enough to ask about what he don't know, and I vow I mean to learn so much anyhow. The first regular meeting of the CLSC, viewed from human standpoints, was certainly a success. The pleased circle detached itself into little groups when the formal meeting was over, and discussed the hopes and plans. We shall have to be very busy, some of us, to get forty minutes a day in which to read. This, Mr. Bennett remarked in a general way. Merivale is interesting, but he doesn't say much about law, and I have to keep Blackstone ever before my mental vision. Whereupon Caroline thought, but did not say, Merivale may be interesting, but I fancy he doesn't say much about setting tables and clearing them off, and making desserts and dusting parlors. I shall certainly have to be very busy. End of chapter 6